And let me summarize a little bit about last week. The Roman Senate has appointed Herod to be the king of the Jews. Word gets to Herod by the wise men that they have seen a star indicating that there is one who is born king of the Jews. So now we have one who is appointed king of the Jews by the Romans, and one whom the wise men said has been born the king of the Jews. One appointed, one born, one legitimate, the one born, one illegitimate, a usurper who has been appointed by a Gentile Roman anti-God government. And when word reaches Herod of the birth of this child king, uh, he goes ballistic. He wants to know where he was born. He sends the wise men on a secret mission to find him and then come back and report so that he says he can go and give allegiance to the newborn king himself. That is a ploy. He's very angry over this news because he knows if word gets out, the Jewish people will ride in the streets, try to get him out of office, and give their allegiance to the legitimate king. And so his goal is to eliminate this newborn king. So we left last week at chapter 2 and verse 12, which says this, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they, that means the wise men, departed for their own country another way. So they returned to the east of the Roman Empire through another route. Now that brings us to verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the Magi or the wise men, behold, this is, tells you that this is something of a surprise is happening, a word that's to grab your attention, behold, look, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, get up. And it means do it now. Get up. Take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Get out. Get out of Jerusalem. Do it now. And stay there. Stay out of this area until I bring you word. And so... What we have is uh, another dream. This would be the third dream in Matthew's Gospel so far. Two have been to Joseph, and through the dream God speaks. So then it says at the end of verse 13, tell gives the reason why they are in the flea, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so what we have is that uh, Joseph communicates with God through a dream. Now, Joseph had a Bible. It's like we have a Bible. He had an Old Testament. But guess what? Joseph, Joseph still believed that God spoke beyond that Bible. That can get very sticky, can it? Very scary. But in Bible times, God spoke a lot of times through dreams. And the big issue is, does God still speak through dreams? Does God still speak through visions? Uh, at what point does God stop doing that? Uh, does he still speak through prophecies? And a lot of people say, well, he doesn't speak through any of those things now because we now have a New Testament, and the Bible's closed, God stops speaking. Suddenly God becomes silent. 
Uh, and yet, we, many people who uh, hold to that position, believe that when the Great Tribulation comes, uh, God is going to raise up two prophets, isn't he? You've heard this, Moses and Elijah. Is that prophets? Are they prophets? Is God going to speak through these prophets? Yes, he's going to speak through prophets. You mean, even though we have a Bible that's last page is, has period on it? He's got, yes, he's speaking through prophets. See, so things are all, never as clear as you think they are. Things are always messy when it comes to theology. And I like that, you know? Because I like to get my fingers in there and get in that mess and then throw out a question and then just leave it there for you to have to sort it out yourself. I don't want to give you answers on these things. That's the last thing you need. But you know what you need, and what all of us need, is to think through these issues on our own to some sort of conclusion, some sort of satisfaction. So in this situation, God speaks to Joseph. So look at verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and he departed for Egypt. So the dream is given for the purpose of motivating Joseph to obedience to take action. And he does exactly what the angel tells him in the dream. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were the one that would have this dream. Now, two things are happening. He's having a dream, and in the dream, an angel speaks. Okay? He's having a dream, and in the dream, the angel speaks. If I were Joseph, and I had the dream, and the angel told me... Uh, get out of bed right now and uh, get out of this country and leave everything behind, all your goods, whatever you have, and just take your family and get out, I would analyze that dream. <laughs> I would have pondered the dream. I would have turned it over in my mind. I would have questioned my sanity. I would have asked what I ate last night before I went to bed. And uh, had I been Joseph, Jesus would have died in his infancy. Because I probably wouldn't have gotten up and left. I said, it's warm under these covers. And this is exactly where I'm going to stay. And this is nonsense. This is an impulse I'm having. This is an obsessive-compulsive behavior. And I'm not going to do that. But Joseph acts immediately. He acts on faith. Now remember, he's already had one dream. And that dream came true. And so he has a little bit to work on. The angel told the wise men to leave, and he knows that. And they were obedient to the dream, so he decides he's going to be obedient, so he takes this act of faith, and he leaves immediately. Uh, but his actions are still prudent. I want you to notice he leaves at night. You see that? That's very important. He doesn't just start marching out during the day, because if Herod's after him, they're going to pick him up. So he leaves at night, and uh, sort of slips out of town. And then verse 15 says... And he was there, meaning in Egypt, until the death of Herod. Now this is basically a summary statement of what's happened. The details are going to follow in verses 16 through 19. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Okay, just think. In light of all of our recent debates and discussions about immigration and people coming across the borders, uh, how do we view this, and how should we maybe view some of our the things that are happening in the world today regarding those kinds of issues? Joseph and his family survived. 
they survived because they've been obedient to the vision. But they survive as refugees. I want you to think about that. They survive because they've gone to a foreign country. To stay in their old country would have meant death. The only way they can survive is if they get out of their homeland and go to this other country. So Jesus gives up, uh, Joseph gives up his work, he gives up his home, he gives up his, his land, and he migrates to Egypt, and this is God's will. This is an immigration, it's God's will. Okay? Now, today we have people coming across our borders. Okay? And everybody in this room probably has some sort of position, or you've thought through it a little bit about what that means. People are coming across the borders, and mainly they're coming across the borders for work. Okay? And we have to decide whether we're going to accept them or not. And all around the world, refugees, just like Joseph and Jesus and Mary, are fleeing to other countries because they're fleeing tyrants who want to kill them. And these other countries are opening their borders to the refugees, and the refugees see that as an answer to prayer. That's a godsend. Okay? So, if Joseph and Mary live today, uh, and their escape was from Mexico or Canada or somewhere like that into America, what would our response have been? And uh, would they have survived? <laughs> would the story end the way it does here with the survival, or would we have closed our borders? Now, I'm just saying this. I'm a very conservative person. I believe in protecting borders. <clears throat> but as I was reading this, these kinds of questions began to come to my mind, and I think that these are... Uh, the kinds of questions that Christians need to deal with and not have knee-jerk reactions. You know, we always just come up with a certain political position and we have a knee-jerk reaction. But when you put it in real-life situation like this, would Joseph and Mary survive if they tried to get into America? Or would we have turned them away at the border? It's a pretty good hard question to answer, isn't it? Uh, is there a difference between somebody trying to find work in another country and somebody... Uh, who's a refugee, you know, escaping for political reasons. You know, these are all kinds of questions that must be answered. So what happens is that Egypt opens its doors and allows these people to come in across the borders and come into Egypt. Now why does Joseph and Mary, why do Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to Egypt rather than, let's say, Libya? <clears throat> now that's very important. When you look at Egypt... You don't think of Egypt as a friendly place. This is the same Egypt that's around today. This is the same Egypt that just overthrew a dictator. Uh, people didn't like living in Egypt. People don't like living in Egypt today the way it is. This is Egypt where there's a military trying to hold the people down after they said they would let them be free. The same Egypt is this Egypt. And this is the Egypt that held the Jews in captivity for years. And Moses had to lead them out to escape this Egypt. But at the time of Jesus' birth, Egypt is a more welcoming place. And uh, we know from the writings of Philo, who writes around 40 AD, that nearly a million people, a million Jews lived in Egypt. 
So it was a place that welcomed a lot of Jews, and uh, maybe they see that as a friendly place. It's only about 200 miles southwest of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, so there's a close proximity to where they're living, and it's a place that's not under Herod's control. So uh, it seems like a safe place from a human standpoint. But when you really say, why do they go to Egypt? They go to Egypt because, at the end of verse 13, the angel says, flee to Egypt. He doesn't say flee somewhere else. He has a place in mind. And at the end of verse 15, it says this. To stay there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, notice that phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And so why do they go to Egypt? Because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, when you go back to that passage, which is in Hosea 11.1, 1, it doesn't look like it's talking about Jesus going to Egypt. In fact, I challenge you this afternoon to go there and see what it's all about. It's a historical reference. Right here. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Quoted in Hosea 11.1. 1. It's a historical reference to God delivering his people out of Egypt, Moses leading the Exodus, the Jewish people out of Egypt, it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It's a historical reference, and there's no doubt about it. Yet Matthew says that Jesus fleeing is a fulfillment of the prophecy. In order to understand all this, you need to understand that there are three prophecies that Matthew says are being fulfilled. One is right here at the end of verse 15 that might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. Verse 17, then was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. That's the second prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. And then down in verse 23, and he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Then it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So, the entire interpretation of this passage is linked to the fulfillment of three prophecies. The first prophecy is Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, this is a historical reference to Israel coming out of Egypt. Notice what God calls Israel right there at the end of verse 15. Calls Israel my son. My son. Now, sometimes Israel's called my wife. God calls Israel my wife. These are all metaphors. Sometimes he calls Israel my son. That title, my son, is used twice in the Old Testament with the reference to the nation of Israel. And I want to show you the one other place. It's very interesting. Why don't you look over at Exodus chapter 4. And when you get to 4, look at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 4.21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my what? Son, my firstborn. So here we have Israel called God's son. And in Matthew he applies it to Jesus. 
he's using the term Israel uh, as God's son in the collective manner, and he, in a sense, is saying that Jesus represents Israel himself. Jesus, as God's son, in a sense, represents Israel. Uh, all that Israel's failed to do, Jesus is going to accomplish, and uh, in a sense, he's the new Israel that is leading a new exodus. Jesus is leading God's people out of bondage. Remember what happened to Israel after they came out of bondage? They went into the water, crossed the Red Sea. Then what happened to Jesus was baptized. He went into the water, came out of the water. And then Israel, after they came out of the water, went into the desert for 40 years. After Jesus is baptized, he goes into the desert for 40 days. Jesus is God's new son, leading a new redemption of uh, God's people. Now, this can get very confusing when you think of all these things, but I want to show you something that's very interesting back in Matthew chapter 2. At the end of verse 15, he says, All this is happening, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. We see something that's very surprising. He says, Jesus... This act of Joseph and Mary and Jesus leaving is the fulfillment of out of Egypt I've called my son. He's not being called out of Egypt. Where's he being called out of? Where's Joseph and Mary and Jesus being called out of? He's not being called out of Egypt. They're being called to go into Egypt, aren't they? Where are they being called out of? Out of Jerusalem... And into Egypt. Wait a second. What's going on here? What would you do with that? Wait a second. They're not being called out of Egypt. They're not escaping from Pharaoh. They're being called out of Jerusalem. They're escaping from Herod. Remember when Moses was born, Herod, uh, Pharaoh wanted, what do you want to do with all the kids? He wanted to kill all the children, didn't he? What does Herod want to do? Oh, well, Herod wants to kill all the children. Now we're starting to see parallel. Herod, for Matthew, is the new Pharaoh. He's just like Pharaoh. And guess what? For Matthew, Jerusalem is just like Egypt. If you said to Matthew, how do you describe Jerusalem? Matthew would say, I describe it as Egypt. And so to be called out of Jerusalem is to be called out of Egypt. And you say, street, that is the, that is the biggest stretch. Nonsense. You've said crazier things before, but this borders right on it. Why can't you just go down a little Sunday school lesson like everybody else? <laughs> deal with immigration, you deal with contradictions. <clears throat> no, I'm dealing with the truth. Now watch this. I want you to go over to Revelation chapter 11. Now we've been here before. And we just have left Revelation. So this is very important that you get this. Remember, I told you just a few moments ago about the two prophets that are going to come during the Great Tribulation period of time and all this. Maybe Moses and Elijah or somebody like that. 
That's a typical understanding. And then look over at Revelation 11 and look at verse 7. Look how the writer of Revelation describes Jerusalem. It says, and when they had finished, this is Revelation 11, verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, that's the two prophets, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and what? Egypt, where our Lord was. Where was he crucified? Jerusalem. But what's it called? Egypt. So, when Matthew says, we're getting him out of Jerusalem, he looks back and says, this is like an exodus. I mean, we're, this is like taking him out of Egypt. This is the fulfillment of that. Because Jerusalem in Jesus' day had become just as bad as Egypt. You know why? Because they were oppressing God's people. And Herod was just like Pharaoh. He did whatever it took to stay in power and oppressed God's people. So this is the condition of Israel during the first century. And if we don't understand this background, this Roman domination and how they used client kings to dominate people in all the countries that they controlled, we will never understand what's going on here. So Herod, who was a client king of the Roman government, supported the Roman government. He did their bidding. He was not out to help God's people. And so uh, his determination is to kill this one who was born king, legitimate king, keep himself in power. And so the angel says, get out of here. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And uh, go. So that's the overview. Now we're going to go to the details. We'll go back to verse 16. Matthew 2, 16. Now the details. Everybody, does that make sense to everybody? <clears throat> okay, now... Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw, he was deceived by the wise men. Now it's going to fill in the gaps here. Was exceedingly angry at vintage Herod. He does not like to be tricked. He wants to stay in power. He's not going to get his hands on this kid. Uh, he's very angry. Herod would do anything to stay in power. We know from uh, Josephus. The, the Jewish historian who writes a lot of history, uh, he says that uh, Herod killed his wife Marianne and two of his sons because he thought they were interested in one day taking over the throne. It's not going to happen to competitors. He kills his own family members. So he's very angry. This is what Herod was like. So uh, he makes a decision here. It says he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, this decree to put forth the children is first of all limited geographically to Bethlehem and all of its districts. And it's limited uh, age-wise from two years old and under according to the time he had determined from the wise men. So what he does is he says, okay, don't know where that kid was born? Send in the troops, what, everybody two years old and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas, the suburbs right around there, and I just want you to wipe them out, just take them out. Now, somebody asked me last week how many kids were killed during this slaughter. Well, Bethlehem only had 1,000 population. It was a very small town. 
so percentage-wise, for that day, we know that probably there were 40, 20 to 40 children, two years and under, uh, in Bethlehem, and maybe that many in the suburbs. So we're not dealing with any more than 40 to 80 people, uh, children who have been killed. So when we talk about the slaughter of the innocents, we think of thousands, you know, dying. Truth of the matter, probably uh, a few dozen. Still terrible. It speaks to the character of Herod. Uh, but that's nothing unusual for Herod. Uh, this event was so insignificant historically, from a historical standpoint, that Josephus doesn't even mention it. But Josephus is a pretty uh, careful historian. He sometimes exaggerates facts. But this doesn't even come on his radar. What? Uh, Herod killed 40, 50 people anytime he wanted to. It's on God's radar, but it's not on Josephus' radar. So maybe uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, possibly as many as 80 children have been put to death. Now look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by, the, by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, after, in other words, after the children died, here's what, that was a fulfillment of uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. And here's what it says in verse 18. The prophecy from Jeremiah 35, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, that prophecy in Jeremiah 35, 15 is describing an, an historical event. The event is that the Babylonians have come down and they've swept into Jerusalem in 722 B.C. That's what this scripture historically speaks about. They've come down and they've invaded Jerusalem in 722 B.C. And they've taken away all the vibrant young males. Remember Daniel? Remember Daniel? Prophet Daniel, how he's sent to... Uh, Babylon and uh, Meshach, you remember all those guys and they're sent there? <clears throat> That's what happened is they took the young men away. And Jeremiah, when that happened, he said this. This was what he, how he described the event. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation. Weeping. Great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children. Refusing to be comforted because they were no more. It's a picture of the nation of Israel weeping over her young men who are being taken into Babylonian captivity. Now, there are two figures mentioned here. The first is Ramah. You see that in verse 18. Ramah was the highest point in the promised land. You could go up on a hill and you would be, reach the highest point. Right now, I live in Rockwall, Texas. My house happens to sit on the highest point in Rockwall County. Now, does it make the house worth a dime more? <laughs> but I just know that when the guy built it, he had the plot, and he said, this is the highest point in the county. Okay. Now, from this vantage point, you could look down and you could see the Babylonian army just taking the young men away. And this is a description of, of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, weeping over her young men, being led into captivity. And the other figure mentioned in verse 18 is Rachel. <clears throat> weeping for her children. Now, when Jeremiah writes this, Jeremiah 35, 15, Rachel's been dead for 500 years. So he's using it figuratively. 
Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to her child. He's saying something like this. If Rachel could live today and see what's happening to her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, she would be crying. She'd be weeping over this message. Like you said, if John Wesley could see the Methodist church today, well, he's using this figure of speech. So this is what Jeremiah is describing, a historical event. Matthew takes that scripture and he says, and guess what? Joseph and Mary and Jesus going into Egypt, having to leave, leave their homeland, go into a foreign country, uh, is, uh, and, and then the children being slaughtered by Herod, he said, is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, in the sense he's saying that uh, uh, it's the same thing that's happened, happened then, is happening now. Israel is weeping over the loss of her children. So he, he just links it. You see how they're using these Old Testament prophets, these Old Testament passages? They really do a lot of twisting to make it a fulfillment. But that's, we dealt with this in the virgin birth issue a few weeks ago. This is how people interpreted the scriptures. They didn't interpret it the way we teach it at Criswell College. You know, and they were inspired and they knew how that scripture should be interpreted. It's a very difficult thing. But anyway, Matthew applies this imagery to the slaughtering of the innocent children. Now what you have in verse 19 is the return from Egypt. Now when Herod was dead, we know that he died in 4 BC. He was 69 years of age when he died. When Herod, the illegitimate king, was dead, look, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, get up. Take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Get out of Egypt. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So, notice the word those. They that sought the young child's life. Those, that's Herod and his cohorts. They, uh, their regime is dead. Herod is physically dead. Uh, now you don't have to stay in Egypt. So what we have is in verse 21, then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. He's obedient to that vision. And he goes back, starts heading straight back to Jerusalem. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go up there. So what he does is he gets, starts leaving Egypt, but rumors come back that uh, Herod's son is ruling there. A guy by the name of Archelaus. When Herod died, Herod's kingdom was divided into four parts. Archelaus got Jerusalem. He was a mass murderer worse than his father. In fact, he was so bad that by 6 AD, Rome had to remove him from office. So uh, he's a bad guy, and uh, Joseph realizes that. He says, well, we can't go back. We have to get out of Jerusalem. The angel said that. But we don't have to go back to the city of, uh, we have to get out of Egypt, but we don't have to go to the city, back to the city of Jerusalem. So it says in verse 22, and being warned by God in a dream, now we have a fifth dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Okay, Galilee. So instead of going from Egypt up to Jerusalem, he goes around and he goes 80 miles north and he goes into Galilee. Okay? 
and Galilee was a region where there were a lot of Gentiles. Okay? Now look at verse 23. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. So that's how they end up in Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled, third prophecy, which was spoken of the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now we face another problem. And here's the problem. Nowhere in the Old Testament prophecy is the word Nazarene mentioned. Nowhere does it say the Messiah will be a Nazarene. Nowhere. Which has caused a great controversy, and some people have tried to figure out, well, what in the world does it mean? This is a fulfillment of what the prophet said, he shall be a Nazarene. Some people said, well, there is a prophecy in Isaiah 11.1, which says that the Messiah will be a branch or a root of David. And the Hebrew word for branch or root is nectar. Of course, it sounds like Nazarene. There's a Z in there. You sort of nectar. Uh, that doesn't satisfy too many people. So I think the most likely answer is that, notice this is not a specific prophecy. It says it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the, look, prophets plural. Do you see that? Prophets plural. It's not a fulfillment of a particular prophecy, but uh, it's a fulfillment of the overall testimony of the prophets. And the overall testimony of the prophets is that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, in Matthew's day, Nazarene was an idiom for a person who lived in the armpit of Israel. If I said, what's the armpit of Texas? You would, everybody, have a different idea. What? Uh, it's a place where you don't want to live. You know? Uh, what's the armpit of New Jersey? You know, what's the armpit? Every town, every city has an armpit. <laughs> it's a place where, you, when they say, where are you from, you always you know, name the city next to where you're from because you don't want anybody to know you're from. Nazareth was uh, an idiom. A Nazarene was an idiom for, for a person who was a nobody, a hick, a hillbilly, uh, a person on the margins. Uh, you know, that's why when, uh, when Philip comes to, uh, or somebody comes to Nathaniel, they said, we found him who's the Messiah. And he said, where's he from? He said, Nazareth. And he says, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the answer is, no. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. So, uh, I think that what it's saying is that the Old Testament prophets uh, collectively understood that the Messiah would be a nobody. He'd be a person who's despised. He'd be a person who's rejected. He'd be a person who uh, is a person of shame and a person of scorn. In this case, it's a Jew who's been rubbing elbows with Gentiles up north. Uh, you, that, you don't want to tell people where you live. It's not a place to live. So it may be something along that line, and I think that's what's the case. I think here's this Messiah, this King of the Jews, who is now living in Nazareth in Gentile territory up north. And the people down south give him no respect. He's a, he's a Yankee Messiah. <laughs> and the people in the south said, we don't follow a Yankee Messiah. He's a nobody. Okay? So, and that's how that section ends. Now, for Matthew's readers, all this is important. What I've just said is important. Why, would, why does Matthew include this story 
in his gospel for his readers, and Luke does not include it in his story for his readers. You don't see it in John, you don't see it in Mark, you don't see it in Luke, you only see it in Matthew. Because Matthew has a certain audience, an audience that's a northern audience, most likely, somewhere around 80, 85, we don't know exactly the right, the exact date when this is written. But uh, for Matthew's readers, this is important because they too are being rejected. And if you remember our introduction, they're being rejected by their own countrymen, Jews, because they're rubbing shoulders with Gentiles. And their Jewish friends and relatives are saying, hey, stay in the synagogue. Uh, separate from those Gentiles. And God says, no, you're part of the church, and there are Gentiles that are part of the church, and you're one in Christ. And uh, you need to be rubbing shoulders and have friends with Gentiles. And as a result, uh, they're going to suffer. And they're going to experience reproach from their friends. And so Matthew is basically saying, hey, what you're going through is nothing unusual. Jesus went through it himself. Uh, Gentiles are God's people as much as Jews are God's people. Uh, it was Gentiles, the wise men, who first gave their allegiance to Jesus. In fact, it was a Gentile that God chose, wasn't it, to start the nation of Israel, Abraham. He was a Gentile before he was a Jew. It was Gentiles who pledged their allegiance to Jesus. It was a Gentile nation, Egypt, that took in Jesus. Joseph and Mary, even though there were Jews living there. And it was a Gentile territory that the angel told Joseph and Mary to go to and live. And now you are in a similar situation, Matthew's readers. Hey, you're in the same boat as Jesus. Don't feel bad. Hang in there. And I think that he's telling them, don't worry about the circumstances. Yes, your government may be against you. Yes, your friends and your neighbors may be against you. Hey, they were against Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Herod was against them. The government was against them. Sometimes your own worst enemy is your government. That was the case for Joseph. Don't worry about it. God can circumvent the government. He can have his hand on your life. And you too can survive. What you're experiencing will one day pass. Just like it passed for Joseph and Jesus and Mary. And so, I think that's why uh, the story is put in there. Because it's put in there for Joseph's readers. Not just a history lesson. It is a lesson for them. How should we live in light of this? And the lesson now is for us, 2,000 years later, in light of this, how should we conduct our affairs regarding all the things that we talked about in here, which are a lot of things, aren't they? Political things, how, what should our response be to a government that's tyrannical? What should our response be to a president who acts without permission from Congress? What should our response be when the government turns against Christianity? A lot of things that apply to us in these kinds of passages. And we need to find out what those lessons are and apply them to our situation as well. Well, next week we pick up at chapter 3. John, uh, Matthew's going to skip 27 years of Jesus' life. He's going to just pick right up to his adulthood and uh, start there and tell about the ministry of Jesus. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for a lesson that has so much in it. Uh, things that we don't see on the surface. Things that are important. Things that we need to know. Things that we need to ponder. Uh, things that are applicable to us. 
things that we need to rethink, strategies that we need to form, commitments we need to make. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that when we study the Scriptures, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, and we put it in the context, uh, we can get the gist of the meaning of a passage. Oh, Lord, help us now apply this passage to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.